the Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book, and you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is, hi, Mike Z is, hi, Mike Z is, the Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, and today on the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. David Kunick, the founder of UCS Advisors and a man who has held many positions in the cannabis business and has been all around the industry, including having been the CEO of a publicly traded cannabis company. And that was like at age 30 or 31 or something like that, something ridiculous. <laughs> so... Um, yeah. Dr. David, thank you for being here. For the, for the folks listening and watching, can you please introduce yourself and share more of your background? Sure, of course. Uh, Michael, first off, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. Uh, so my name is Dr. David Kunick. I'm the CEO and co-founder of UCS Advisors and Investor Relations. Um, however, I'm actually a doctor of physical therapy and I have a second doctorate in healthcare management. Um, I've been very fortunate enough to have actually started 13 companies in the last 17 years, and I have sold seven of those companies. Um, you are correct. I took my company public and back when 2009, 2010, and we were one of the first 1,000 to 1,500 publicly traded cannabis companies here in the United States. Um, so from there, I've actually been very blessed to start numerous canvas companies in about five different states. And here we are now talking. So that's kind of the, the 30,000 foot view of, of a little bit of a background. And um, someone told me last year, and it's kind of stuck is they're like, Dr. David, you're like a triple headed dragon. You've been in the medical field for over 18 years. You've been in the cannabis industry for over a decade. And you've been a business owner for over 18 years as well too. You truly are a triple-headed dragon, so. That's amazing, and Dr. David, I love you know that you have this great business and medical background, and that's all good and nice, but what I really, really appreciate about you more than anything else is that you are constantly encouraging people to strive for greatness and to be willing to achieve greatness. And I think that is such a powerful message that most people, unfortunately, don't hear a lot in their lives. And I'm personally a big believer that we all naturally, it's wired into us, it's built into us, we all want greatness. Whatever that means to us, everyone wants it, everyone is capable of it. I am so grateful that this is something that you're constantly a champion of. So I, I'm curious for just to ask you quickly about that. Like, what's the deal with that? I've always had um, little life sayings, uh, you know, throughout the years. Um, Walt Whitman is actually one of my favorite poets. Um, and as someone who's bit started businesses in numerous different sectors, and I've been very blessed to have start to have worked with people and over 30 plus states and in over six countries. And what's interesting is different parts of the country and also different countries, they do business a very different way. And they really approach business a different way. And unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, especially in the New York, New Jersey area, a lot of people view the glass as half empty, not half full. A lot of people are quick to strike you down. And the one thing is what I've really noticed through opening businesses, I'm very proud of myself. I've hired numerous veterans. I've hired numerous ex-cons because people all deserve a second chance. And the one thing I would say is that we all have greatness within us. Just are you willing to achieve it? And your level of greatness, Michael, might be different than my level of greatness. But we each have the opportunity to achieve it. And the thing is, are you willing though? And that's what it comes down to. And that's where the saying comes from, are you willing to achieve your greatness? And that's why, you know, people see me sometimes on social media, my personal saying is always be willing to achieve your greatness. 
And my company motto for UCS advisors is helping your company achieve greatness because each company has different goals. Each company uh, has uh, different achievements they, they want to uh, attain. Each person has different achievements they want to attain. Just are you willing to do it? Are you gonna open up your arms like a big hug and receive that hug? Are you, are you going to receive that greatness? That's your choice and you just gotta be willing to do it. And kind of the rest is, is from there. And um, it's funny, earlier today, I, I was talking to someone else and the reason why they came to us was just because of that saying, are always be willing to achieve your greatness. Um, and especially during COVID, during the pandemic, um, it's something that's really come really more to fruition. Um, something we did here uh, is that I actually wrote a handwritten letter uh, to literally over 200 plus people and just uh, enclosed a poem of hope in there. Uh, just say, hey, you know what, no matter what's going on in the world, you know, take, take a step back. It's okay, you can still achieve your greatness. You know, we might have to adapt and pivot, but achieving the greatness you want to achieve is still doable. Amazing. I love that. It, it reminds me that, yes, we all have greatness within us. And it makes me think of the hero's journey. Are you willing to step beyond your comfort zone and the trap, what I judge to be the trap of good enough and go beyond that to achieve greatness? Because it is something that must be earned. The greats, exactly. whether you look at sports or business or art or anything you know the people who achieve greatness and really like the the highest levels of greatness the one thing that they all have in common i believe is that they are all willing to go the extra step and go and do the thing or put in the time or the effort or the energy that others are not willing to and so i, I love the question of are you willing to go for it Mm -hmm. And so anyway, we could, we could wrap about that for a while. I want, I want to, I want to focus a little more and, you know, I, I love hearing people's origin stories and sharing cannabis entrepreneurs mm -hmm. origin stories. So how or why did you decide to enter the cannabis industry? So it was actually a little bit of an evolution. Um, as a medical practitioner, we have a medical code of ethics and two parts of that medical code of ethics is one, to always fight on your patient's behalf. Okay. Even if something's federally illegal, but it's a better treatment option, you have to fight for your patients. Hmm. Cannabis is, was deemed illegal. You can't use it for medical, but there's research over in like Israel saying it works well as a medical practitioner, you need to fight for that. And secondly, as a medical practitioner, we have to empower and educate our patients. And what happened was back in 2009, 2010, we actually partnered with a very popular website at that time. And we were doing all their health and wellness articles and information. And we were producing about 100 new articles a day on overall wellness for people, and here comes the catch, and for their pets. And we were covering uh, CBD dog biscuits back in 2009, 2010. We were coming with the benefits of CBD for patients. Um, people forget uh, California's had medical marijuana law since 1996. The state of Maine has had medical marijuana law since 1999. So we were producing articles every day on health and wellness, and we were covering cannabis as well as CBD. So from there, um, that that first opportunity covering cannabis and CBD then led to an opportunity to get involved in the testing lab sector. So then as a medical practitioner, because back in 2010, 2011, being in New Jersey, New York, it wasn't cool to be in cannabis. And here I am owning a bunch of medical facilities, not kind of cool to be in cannabis. <laughs> so um, we actually got uh, asked to be involved in the testing lab sector um, where we didn't grow it and we didn't sell it. Rather, we were kind of like the FDA of cannabis. And we had a facility in Las Vegas, one in Denver, and one in uh, Portland, Oregon. And then from there, that just led to a bunch of other uh, opportunities such as vaporizer companies, helping out with dispensaries, helping out with other ancillary companies, and everything kind of just morphed from there. So uh, people say, if, um, I'm very frank, I wish all 50 states had medical cannabis laws. I think we should really use it as a medicine and allow it for all 50 states. And 
pretty much as a medical practitioner, I was educating and empowering the public and patients. And from there, I want to make sure that people that got the medicine got consistent product that was good for them. I mean, after all, Michael, we don't want the 1980s Tylenol situation that occurred back, back in the day. So that's kind of how we, I got involved in the cannabis sector, and it's really more from there. And then I uh, decided to volunteer and help out on uh, several state boards and then to give um, entrepreneur classes for uh, first-time business owners in cannabis, hemp, or CBD. Awesome. So, Dr. David, what is your highest power or your superpower that has allowed you to start 13 businesses and sell half of them and, you know, has allowed you to become the triple threat, the triple three-headed dragon, double <laughs> doctor, you know, what, what, what is it about you? What, tell me about your, your greatness. What is it about Dr. David? In terms of business, uh, I take a medical approach towards business. And not a lot of business people can think medical-wise. And then I, for whatever reason, I'm just extremely blessed to be good at business, but I can also talk medical. So be able to talk to metal, other medical professionals, but have that business acumen. So a lot of times people will say to me in business, well, why are you taking this approach to it? And I take a medical approach. Um, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm very transparent. Um, you know, have I been screwed over many times for being too trustworthy? Yes, I have. But maybe it's karma because everything comes back around. But in terms of business, it's being able to take a medical approach as well as I'm notoriously known for thinking outside the box um, and saying, okay, what other alternatives? When people say, oh, well, I can't achieve my greatness, I say, listen, you always have a choice in life. You may not like your choices, but you have a choice. So really the superpower really comes down to is being able to think outside the box and also just taking a medical approach towards business because every part of the country does business differently. You have to be able to adapt. You have to keep an open mind. Um, I, I have taken a lot of chances on startup companies and people say, why do you take a chance in a startup? And I say, well, why not? Someone gave me a shot. I still remember my very first investor when I was 24, year, 24 years old. If that guy never took a chance on this 24-year-old kid, I wouldn't be where I am today. And though when someone takes a chance on you and they show that loyalty, you know, people remember that and they appreciate that a lot. Um, and it's also, and this is very cliche, but really, Michael, the power of networking. I mean, I, I, not to date myself, but like I didn't get the internet till my junior year of high school. Like... And then I went to a school for medical professional where you didn't need the internet. You still went to the library and looked up the old school medical journals for your research, uh, you know, got the paper cuts and all. But I always kept a Rolodex of, of people and I would contact them at least once a quarter and just say hello before there was LinkedIn, before there was Facebook, um, before there was Instagram. Like, like I would always constantly reach out to people and stay connected with them. And even it was just a simple hello, it goes a long way. Um, and that's why I kind of really kind of think really what, what the key has been for, for the greatness. Um, I just think I'm an average person, to be very frank, at the end of the day. I, I've been very successful on some things, and I've failed miserably on other things. Um, and it makes you very hu humble with that. Um, it makes you really appreciate what you have. And as I said, kind of like two ears, one mouth, use them proportionately network, talk, make real connections. And by the way, here comes the other thing, Michael, ready? And this is a really cool concept. I don't know if you heard of this thing, okay? This is this thing called a telephone. So if it takes more than two text messages or more than two emails, watch this. Hello, Michael, can you hear me? How about we talk for a minute or two instead of texting or emailing nonstop? And you'll be amazed how much interaction gets done by a simple five-minute phone call. Yeah, I love that. I love that. This medical approach to business. I'm curious to hear a little more about what, what does the medical approach to business look like and what can all the non-doctors out there, you know, what's a tool maybe that they can take out of your belt to apply to their businesses? 
Great question. Phenomenal question, by the way. Uh, you make me think good on this one. <laughs> um, I think it really comes down to how you interact with people. And so a, a, as a physical therapist, I've worked with, and like when I was CEO of a public trade company, one of my investors didn't want to pay me. So I was literally teaching geriatrics how to walk, teaching people how to get on and off a toilet bowl seat, teaching people how to get dressed again. Everyone works differently. So you have to change your approach to each person you work with. When I did outpatient orthopedics, you know, Michael, you might come in and be my three o'clock patient with a neck injury. My 3.30 patient might have an ankle injury. My four o'clock patient might be a hip injury. Everyone's different. And their patients might range from 10 years old to 70 years old. So you have to be able to adapt to each person you're speaking to, okay? Uh, you really have to have key listening skills, okay? And when you're asking the key listening skills, part of that medical approach is assess the situation at hand, okay? Something that I use in business is, uh, in which it really helped us back in 2011, we actually won a national award for small businesses to work for in America is, if your employee messes up and screws up, you're gonna get mad upset, but did that employee know better? If they didn't know better or they weren't educated, who are you as their boss to get mad or upset with them? You can't. Take a step back, see where they're coming from, from their perspective, and then adapt and pivot. And here is a great piece of advice for business people to take a better approach. And I use this in, my, in our investor relations class. Remember when you were in third grade, your teacher used to teach you uh, visually, audially, and manually, because every kid learns differently. But when you get to college, your professor's like, it's either my way or the highway. Well, that, that's not how the real life works. So to act like a third grade teacher, and when you're talking to a potential investor, or you're trying to do a potential business deal, everyone learns differently. Be able to explain yourself in all three forms, whether it's a, a visual presentation, an audio presentation, maybe people like want to touch or feel the product at all. Um, people, some people learn better that tactile way, but you have to be able to adapt that. And, and if you take another step further is, and I actually uh, did, recently did a quick video about this on LinkedIn is, make sure you answer people's questions directly. If you go to a doctor's office and you say to the doctor, my shoulder hurts, do I need surgery? Yes or no? The doctor says, well, you know, uh, we might do meds, we might do an injection, we might do this, we might do that. You're gonna say, doctor, I'm asking you a straight question. Do I need surgery, yes or no? Same as I think happens in business, is that people will ask you a direct question, but you get so focused in your head what you wanna do or what you wanna say that you're not listening to your audience. And so I, we usually tell people to take that third grade approach, which you have to do as a medical professional, you know, really keep that open mind and really listen to what the person's saying. So that's kind of what I mean about really kind of taking that, that medical approach. And also too, look where, look where the situation is. You know, if you're doing a heavy uh, negotiation and the guy gets on the phone, oh, hey, I'm so sorry, I'm running two hours behind today. My kid's sick at home. My wife needs me to go pick up dinner. Okay, let's talk about this you may not want to have that conversation right now. You might want to be the nice guy and say, hey, you know what, take care of your family. Let's reschedule this call. You know, show that human compassion side. There's, there's more than life than just business. And we forget about that. Yeah, totally. Excellent. And so what I'm hearing a lot from you is, you know, part of that medical approach is actually what I'm going to call like the, the bedside manner, right? Of just being able to, actually relate to the other person involved in the transaction, the deal, the negotiation, whatever, and being able to communicate effectively in a way that meets people where they are so that they actually get the message. And I also heard you say, you know, being objective in assessing the situation and to use the medical term, diagnosing the situation and having a plan yeah of, okay, here is how we get to the solution. 
And the other thing I heard you say, which I really liked, was about when you're the leader and your people mess up, it's still your fault at the end of the day. Because if you're the leader, you're responsible for the team. And if they didn't know better, then that's on you to an extent, right? And, and taking that ownership and responsibility for, for the people who support you and work with and for you, I think is a key aspect of, of leadership that, you know, sometimes people forget those less sexy parts of leadership and they think, oh, I get to call the shots. I get to decide. I get the glory. That's not leadership. So a- anyway, um, I, I want to shift gears. I want to ask you about 2020, which has been a wild year. I'm curious how your business has fared through this year and what you're seeing from the cannabis world and from the investment world. Sure. Um, for our, our hourly clients, we actually offer a, a program where they can pay for 10 hours of service and they can actually get a refund for up to a year. The hours are good for one year and any unused hours after the year, we'll give them a refund. When uh, COVID first hit, we actually refunded all the remaining hours for all our hourly clients, whether they asked for it or not. We just said, hey, you know what? We know it's not a lot of money, but hey, if this helps you out, here you go. And some people say, oh no, I'm, I'm paying you right back. And other people are like, oh my God, thank you so much. I, you know, even though this is only like 800 bucks or a thousand bucks, it just, the fact you were proactive about that, that really means a lot to us. Um, so that's what we did for our hourly clients. Um, in terms of investors and investments, um, we saw several investments be delayed by several months because of COVID. However, though, the investment still came to fruition. And that was what really made investors very happy in the hemp, CBD, and cannabis sector. Um, the other thing we're really seeing is uh, you were seeing a lot more individuals looking to invest in the private sector for cannabis and hemp rather than the public sector or the publicly traded companies because they don't trust the markets right now. Um, they don't, don't see what's out there. And, and you have a lot of private deals that are giving personal guarantees or first liens or much better return on investments overall than the stock markets. And the fact that cannabis has been deemed essential in over 30 states, and that's the first time in over 80 years that's occurred, people are, are saying, ding, 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 ding. Oh my God, this is not going away. And then people in hemp are now saying, wait, Majority of our hemp came from China, actually. Now we're not getting hemp from China. Ding, 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 ding. Great time to do something here in the US. So in terms of investment opportunities, we're really seeing a lot of individual investors reach out to us. And and let me take a step further, Michael. Uh, If you're the average hardworking middle-class American that wants to invest like $25,000 or $50,000, who do you turn to? Well, you can't go to a regular broker dealer because they want at least $200,000 or $250,000. If you go to your financial planner, financial advisor, well, they can't teach you anything cannabis related or hemp related. And thirdly, if you want to do something in the private sector, who do you go to to talk about that? So there's that void. And we kind of really help fill that void uh, because we really help give proper direction to people where to turn to and where to look. So now that cannabis has been deemed essential, you see cannabis on the rise, hemp on the rise. Uh, we're seeing actually a big influx of individual investors as well as family wealth offices looking for really good and unique opportunities. And in terms of our hourly clients, um, we help uh, look at pitch decks, review pitch decks. We do a lot of role playing on how to present to an investor properly because this is called spade a spade, Michael. If you haven't raised all the money you need for your company within six months, nine times out of 10, you're doing something wrong. So we're now seeing a lot more people saying, okay, I really want the best bang for my buck. So if anything, our hourly clientele since beginning of August has actually increased by almost 30, 40% because people are saying, all right, there's money out there and I have people interested, but I'm not closing the deal. What am I doing wrong? I need some help and some guidance. And uh, we work a lot of business coaches, but a lot of business coaches don't work with fundraising or raising capital. 
and no one goes to college say, oh my God, I would do investor relations for a living. Yay. Like people just don't do that. So the business has been on the rise and um, it's just really cool to see people who have had faith in you and faith in your recommendations and to see that come to fruition. And now they're recommending their friends and family and other people. Awesome. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Let me ask you a quick follow-up there, which is, you know, for the folks that maybe are struggling to raise money or new to raising money, what's a common mistake that you've seen people make? Or what's maybe a piece of advice that you can share to make the process less painful and more fruitful? Great question. And what we're going to do is we teach these green nuggets of information. Our number one green nugget, our number, our number one green nugget advisory tip is failure to plan is planning to fail. Okay. And here's our analogy. High school senior going to go to college. All right. Would you give a high school senior or your kid a check for $250,000? Say, I don't care where you go to college. I don't care what you graduate with or what you're doing. Here you go. Here's $250,000 to get you through college and get your bachelor's degree. Would you do that? No, you wouldn't. So why would an investor give you, let's say $250,000 if you have no exit strategy? You don't know how you're gonna pay back the investor. You don't know how you're gonna grow. You have no clear cut plan. So what we always tell people is this, you need to work backwards. Like what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? And people say, oh, I don't know, that's too tough. I'll see what happens. No, you can't do that. No one's going to give you money for that. Now, plans change all the time. And it's okay for plans to change, but you have to have a general idea. Like one of my favorite ones is this. When, uh, when I go to some of these canvas events and I teach basic investor relations, I, and there's a crowd, let's say, of 100 people. And I say, all right, who here wants our company acquired? And usually at least 40 to 50% people raise their hand. I go, great. What percentage of companies actually get acquired overall? And people are like, uh, and I'm like, what if I told you it's less than 5%? And they go, oh. <laughs> and then the second piece of advice, and this is not a self-plug at all. This is just in general for anyone because it's one of the biggest misconceptions about raising money. It costs money to raise money. The word free only gets you so far. If you were to look at other sectors outside of cannabis, the average company spends five to 10% of how much they're looking to raise just on expenses alone. So if you're looking to raise $100,000, be prepared to spend about $5,000 to $10,000 to reach that goal. You wanna raise a million dollars, be prepared to, raise, to spend $50,000 to $100,000. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people have that they say, oh, well, I don't have the money. I can't raise it. Or, hey, you know, someone just needs to give me money. No one wants to help me out. Well, no, you really have to have a clear exit strategy and you have to be prepared to spend some capital. And that's what people don't realize. Like you need the lawyer in place. You need your, your offering in place. You need your pitch deck done. And there's a lot of things you can do on your own, but you need to have a few things done. And I'll give you one quick horror story. There was a client and they need $2.5 million. They came to us after nine months and they only raised a hundred grand. We went through their numbers and we said, Hey, if I read this right, you guys only need $700,000 and you make enough money to self-fund your company. They said, yes, but the company helping us wouldn't do that. They said we had to raise at least 2 million. I said, okay. Well, let's dumb it down. Let's see if we can get several investors each for $100,000 each. Get seven investors each at 100 grand. Within three weeks, we had two investors. Each of them wanted to put in at least 100 grand. They said, send us over the term sheet and the paperwork, ready to go. The client didn't even retain a lawyer yet to fill out and have the proper offering. And we warned them and we warned them and we warned them. And literally from there, what ended up happening was they lost the two investors. Both investors were like, we're ready to give the money within a week. You guys don't have their act together. Why would we give them money? So that's why I always tell people failure to plan is planning to fail. Absolutely. Wow. That's a funny. I can't tell if that story is funny or sad, 
but oh, it's 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 both, and it, what makes it more interesting is that the power of networking and like it's a small world. Uh, about four months later, that that former client reached out to those two investors behind our back, asking for money, and they both said no. We go through UCS advisors. Sorry. <laughs> it's a it's a, it's a great topic. I'm sure we could spend an hour easily just chatting about the do's and don'ts of fundraising. I have some information in my book, the Cannabis Business Book, all about raising money. And and I think I, I love how you take this approach of really simplifying things because what I've found is so many entrepreneurs, especially if they're less experienced, have this big fear around fundraising. And they have this story that it's like, super complicated and you know scary and all this stuff and what i what i say in the book is like look this is very simple investors want to make money and you just have to show them that you're gonna make them money that's the story that you have to relay in, in in a meaningful compelling way and the way to do that is you know through having the paperwork, through having the offering, through having all of your business ducks in a row. And, you know, the, the other thing I love to say to people is, listen, let's be honest. If you had a million dollars or if you had millions of dollars to invest, would you put your faith in yourself? You know, would you put up money to give yourself the 100K, the 250 but whatever it is. And if not, then what's the work that you have to do to become that person that, that inspires the trust, that inspires the confidence from the investor that, hey, this person is going to be a good steward of my capital. And not only are they responsible enough that I'm going to give them the money, but they're resourceful and committed and productive enough that they're going to make my money earn more money. And, you know, to me, it's like, it doesn't, those are the fundamentals there, you know, and it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Everything else is, I'm not going to say textbook stuff, but everything else is something that if you don't know how to do it, you, you go find Dr. David and Dr. David will whip you into shape and, and get you the support you need to get the documents in place and, you know, and do all of the business stuff. But, you know, on the simplest level to me, it's like, do you have the integrity and do you have, like you said, the plan of, hey, Mr. Investor, for every dollar that you give me, I'm going to bring you back five, 10, 15, whatever. And here's how. That's it, you know? And of course, it's easier said than done. But it's also, it's also a numbers game. And people forget that. Like, you get a lot of rejection. I mean, technically, you're looking at a 3% closure rate. I mean, so technically, I have every 100 people, you maybe close three. That's not a high number in general. And then also, too, it's what you said, like about um, investing in yourself. Investors want to know, great, what have you done to bootstrap this? What have you done on your own to take care of this? And, and we have some investors, this goes back to knowing your audience. What they do is they take their pitch deck, look at the, look at the pro forma, and just see what they're paying themselves. And, and I learned this lesson back in, and thank God, I learned this lesson back in 2012, I was raising about 14 million and I went to this real estate group that was recommended by another investor and he literally warned me. He goes, make sure all your salaries are listed on the performa. And I'm like, well, we, we pay ourselves almost nothing. We pay ourselves like 35 grand a year, like just like barely anything. And he's like, great. He goes, I'm like, why? He goes, the very first thing this guy's going to do is look at that guy takes literally a a 20 page performer goes, show me your employee page, your payroll. I show him, he goes, Oh, everyone here on your board makes less than $35,000 a year. Yeah. Cause we need the money for business operations. Great. And the guy writes me a check for almost a million dollars. Hey, cause, and, and you'll be amazed how many investors will not, I repeat, will not invest if you're paying yourself a high salary. So, so I, I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. It brings up a point that I also make in the book, which is these for investors, they value their time so much and they see so many deals. They expect to say no a hundred times before they say yes. And so 
they're not going to spend a ton of time getting to know every single deal, every single pitch, every single entrepreneur. And instead, what they're going to do is exactly what David just described is a lot of them will have over the years developed their own shortcuts and processes and whatever to just to, to get to a no quickly or to get to a yes. But oftentimes, more often than not, it's going to be to get to a no. And it's like, you know, I'll, I'll give an example of David Hess, who was on my podcast weeks great ago. Great, great guy. guy, great activist and, and cannabis investor. And he said, you know, if someone asks me for an NDA, that's like such a pet peeve of mine because it's kind of a waste of time. <laughs> and especially if they insist and we go back and forth on it a bunch. And, you know, if they're wasting my time, boy, it's an uphill battle. And, and so, you know, the, the point is that exactly what you said. You have to have that game plan. You have to be polished and tight. Well, Michael, really I would take it a know. step further. Go for so it. So David and I had a conversation about this. David Hess is a great guy, phenomenal guy. I have a lot of respect for him, his organization. Absolutely phenomenal person to talk shop with. And we're talking about NDAs. And I go, oh, I take it. I go, I'm not that bad. I'm all about DocuSign. If you're in cannabis or hemp, technically you care about the environment. So if you're too lazy to send it to me via electronic signature and you're going to force me to print out and kill, pay, kill trees to sign this NDA, really? Like, think about this. And then I, then I tell people a step further. I go, if you really need an NDA that bad and I'm an investor, wait, we're going to stop this entire process because I'm going to have to stop. Wait till I get to a printer, print it out, sign it, scan it, email it back. Why are you making more processes, more steps than you need to? So I literally tell people, if you don't have DocuSign, then listen, I'm not signing the NDA. Like it just, if you're that lazy, you can't afford the, the 20 bucks a year for electronic signature, then you're not serious. Yeah, I love that. That's funny. And yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's David just, and I talk about the NDA thing a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, yeah, I'm not going to comment on it because I, I don't want to offend anyone, but yeah, man. It's just the, the, the thing I will say is your job as a salesperson, because when you are raising capital, you're, you're selling a part of your company, right? And your vision and selling yourself. Your job as a salesperson, no matter what you're selling, is to make it easy for the other person to say yes. Your job is to remove obstacles, to, to pave a smooth road for them to the promised land not to create barriers and make them jump through hoops and all this stuff. And it's just like, you know, what David Hess said is, you know, if it, the judgment that, that he makes is like, if you don't have the common sense to, to consider that and bake that into your process, again, you're already kind of demonstrating to the investor that, well, I don't know if this is exactly the right operator. Anyway. And take it a oh, step further. Please. Take it a step further. Um, something that we, we've been talking a lot about with our clients is you have to be flexible with your time because of COVID so many people and so many people working from home, a lot of investors are doing meetings after they put their kids to bed or before the kids are up. So like you're doing investor meetings at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., or sometimes 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And we had one deal fall apart just because the investor said point blank, if this guy's not willing to talk to me after 10 o'clock at night, then why the hell would I give him one penny? And, and, and our client was like, yeah, but it's so late for me. I get up early in the morning and I have my family. I go, wait, hold on. This guy's going to write you a check for over a half a million dollars. And you can't do his phone calls after 10 o'clock at night. If, you, if he can't even get a hold of you now, what's going to happen when he actually gives you the money? Like, hello, McFly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. David, I want to ask you, what are you most excited about right now in the cannabis industry or in your business? Um, what I'm most excited about is one, we just had one of our former investors. Uh, let, uh, let me just step back. We just had one of our former investors recently uh, invest in our company without even asking. And kind of like, hey, we trust your judgments. Any deal you want to do, 
you just tell me that send me the paperwork and I'll say yes. Which to have someone give you that much power to trust you is, I mean, that's, that's really cool. Like that's, that's super, super exciting for someone to give you that level of trust. And, um, I'm really excited about where hemp is going as well as the ancillary sector of cannabis for the next 18 months. I'm really excited to see where it's going between now and 2022. Uh, there's a lot of great, great opportunities out there, whether it's to open up a business in this industry or to invest in this industry. I really think between now and the end of Q1 of 2022, you're gonna have great opportunities. And uh, the opportunities are still gonna be there after 2022, just they're not gonna be as pronounced. Uh, we're really at that step to go to the next level. I mean, I've been to every MJ Biz show. I remember the first one in Colorado when there was like less than a thousand people to now over 50,000 people attending uh, to see uh, how, how much it's grown. Um, you know, someone who uh, resides in North Jersey to be shunned in this industry as a medical professional to, oh my God, you're my cannabis guy. You're the only guy I know that's been in the industry for so long and we can sit here and ask you for help and advice. So um, I think the upcoming election is gonna be really uh, interesting to see what happens with the medical and legalization in certain states. And I really see the floodgates opening up uh, in 2021. So that, that's what I'm really excited about. And, I, and I'm also working on a few uh, personal projects where uh, uh, hopefully um, 2021 will help get to get them closer to fruition. So, Awesome. One last question before we shift gears into coaching. New Jersey, you know, it's on the ballot this year in a few weeks. We're a few weeks away here, I, amazingly. Yes, and I'm curious what your sense is. Is it going to pass? Is it not going to pass? What, what, do you, what do you see? What do you foresee in New Jersey for the next year? I, my concern is that New Jersey will be like the state of Maine. The state of Maine passed legalization by literally at less than a half a percent point. And I do a lot of um, uh, activism work up in New England. So I'm very familiar with a lot of uh, what's going on in New England with cannabis and their legalization is coming to market October of this year, almost four years later. Now that's a state that has less than 1.9 million people living in it. And in New Jersey, we're the most densely populated state in America. Now, if it took a simple state like Maine, almost four years to work out the rules and regulations for, for legalization after it passed, what do you think is going to happen in New Jersey? Because people think if it does pass, oh, we're getting free weed and legalization within six months. No, we're not. I think it's going to be at least two years till you see it, the program really come to fruition. And that's my concern is if it does pass, that we're going to get bogged down on so much figuring out which governing body is going to oversee everything and figure out the rules and regulations. And something that we actually tell a lot of people here in New Jersey is that if you want to get involved in cannabis or hemp, it's a lower cost to market investing in other states. Go invest in other states, go invest in other companies, learn about the industry because the opportunity is still going to be here in New Jersey in two years. So now when you come here, you're more educated. And I tell people for first-hand experience, I mean, my testing lab in Las Vegas, we were so early to market, we went over budget by almost $4 million. Like, think about that, $4 million, we went over budget. That's, that's, that's a lot of money. And we were too early to market by a year and a half. Like, I tell people from first-hand experience, like, that's my concern about New Jersey. Um, I don't think people should complain about how much they're going to tax recreational because look at other states, which are ta taxing at much higher than what New Jersey is proposing um, overall in general. And the last thing is, is that the big issue, which I, I hear a lot about, is being able to grow at home in New Jersey. And is that an important battle to fight? Yes, it is. But in my opinion, is that one of the top two or three things to battle? No, not right now. At this time, I think that's going to happen in due time. But I mean, Murphy's pushing hard to get this passed. He's pushing hard. Um, I'm just really concerned about what will happen if it does pass. 
with the rules and regulations because I think you're gonna have a lot of upset and angry people. And, and Michael, let's put a few things in perspective here. Um, in 2015 and 16, I was quoted in USA Today and a few other magazines how marijuana is modern day penicillin. We only have le like seven or eight dispensaries in New Jersey. That's like only seven or eight hospitals having penicillin. They fought for years to be able to get that. Do you think they're really going to allow 20 or 30 more dispensaries or hospitals to open up and offer penicillin now very quickly? No. And that's the politics, that's the money, but that's where some of the mindset is. So I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, next 24 months here in New Jersey and what happens. You know, I hear your concerns and I think they're very valid, especially when you look at the whole Northeast and the East Coast cannabis industries. Nobody has gotten up and running quickly. You know, even look at Massachusetts, you know, it took them years to really get going to get a dispensary in Boston mm -hmm. from when they passed the legislation. So, and look at New Jersey's latest round of medical. You know, they still haven't gotten any of those shops up and running or those licenses awarded last time I checked. And it's been over a year now, you know, so I, I think you're right in the concern of that, you know, maybe the legislation will, will happen, but then it's going to take a long time for everything to get sorted out and to actually become operational and you know, from what I've seen, unfortunately, there's a lot of room to undermine the program in that time. So it, I think it will be a very interesting 24 months indeed. Um, all right, I want to shift gears. I want to be mindful of your time and I want to make sure we get at least a little bit of coaching in. Although I feel like this whole conversation- I got all the time in the world for you, buddy. Oh, I love it. That's, you're very generous. Um, Dr. David- how can I best support you today? What's, what, where can I offer you some, some good uplifting coaching action? So I'm happy you asked that question because one of my goals in life is to uh, author and write my own book. And I've only co-authored a book with several other people, um, but I really want to do something in the cannabis hemp sector and write a book. So maybe like a three-part question like one you know what kind of mindset like do you as a writer someone who's actually written a book and what kind of mindset like how did you dedicate your time how to do that secondly like how about like would you want to self-publish versus outside publishing you know and you know from there did you figure you had to go out and get a, um, a publicist right away to help uh, or a, a ghostwriter like there's so many different options out there and I just like to kind of hear your perspective um, on literally like that mindset. And um, I've talked to two other people, but they are, these are prof professional writers who wrote um, fictional stories. And now we're talking, that's completely different than doing something like this. So I just really like to just to hear your thought process, especially like, I know it's, it's not easy to just sit down and figure out like, Hey, am I writing for 10 hours a week or do I just write every single day or do I just write like when it comes to me? So anything you can uh, shed some light on with that, I think it'd be really helpful for me. Absolutely. This is something I've helped many people with and have answered these questions a bunch of times. And I will ironically give you some of what you've already shared with me and what you already know, which is, I think it's like habit two of, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people which is begin with the end in mind. And so my first question to you would be, why are you writing a book? What is your goal for writing the book? Because it's very different if, if you're doing it. And I'll tell you, when I wrote my first book, it was very much just a personal endeavor of, oh my gosh, I've always wanted to write a book. And how cool would it be to say that I wrote a book and blah, blah, blah. You know, whereas my second book was much more intentional about writing a great book. And, you know, of course, I had, I guess, business goals and ambitions associated with each project. But even those were different and they helped shape kind of the game plan. 
So my first question to you or anyone who wants to write a book is, you know, get really clear on why and think about what is the big goal? Like what does, so I'll ask you this. Let's say you wrote a book. What does the success scenario look like for you? You know, what, what would make it worthwhile? What would make it a big win? I don't have that exact answer right now because when you, when, and if you already got my mind thinking as I'm writing down notes, <laughs> um, I'm old school, I'm pen and paper type of guy. Um, you know, it's the beginning of the end because one part of me really wants to write a, for lack of a better term, a tell-all book of a decade in cannabis because uh, it's changed so much from 2010 to 2020. And then the second part of me really talks about uh, more of the motto, are you willing to achieve your greatness? You know, and where that comes from and how almost a perfect storm of, what's the, uh, that, that book called Outliers? You know, we have like the perfect storm of everything. I, I will say I've had the perfect storm of some horrible, horrible situations occur and I've survived through it. And if I didn't have some of those situations, I wouldn't be where I am today. <laughs> but a good, bad, or indifferent. So, uh, I mean, my ultimate goal, ideally, and this sounds kind of cheesy, but ideally I want to eventually be in front of an auditorium, at least a thousand people, public speaking. I want a hundred dollar bill in an envelope underneath everyone's chair. So when I start my speech, I'm like, everyone reach underneath, that's my gift back to you. And then continue from there. Nice, nice, that's great. Make sure to invite me because I'd love to show up and get a hundred bucks. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but let, let me ask you, so, so I'm gonna say, that's always my first question is why, right? Why are you writing this book? What's the, what's the end game? And two is, who is this book for? Now, part of the answer I suspect is going to be, you know, for yourself, right? Because there's something that you're seeking to, to get from this experience or, you know, whether it's sharing your story or, or just the, the pride of having a book or whatever it may be. So there's a piece that's in it for you. But more importantly you know, if you want the book to be successful, it's really, what are you going to give the audience and who is the audience? Who is the reader for this book? And what are they going to get out of this book? You know, just like in business, it's all about creating value and for a book to be worth it. Points. Right. It's, it's, you know, what is the, the growth, the benefit, the value that a reader is going to get from the book. And so I, I think that's another critical question because the fact is anyone can write a book. Books are like cannabis. Anyone can grow a cannabis plant. It grows like a weed. Anyone can write a book. But the question is, how do you write a great book, right? How do you create a, a book that has impact that changes lives that makes a difference so i think i would ask you you know what does that look like for you again like what's that success scenario of what is this book doing not only for you and for for your personal goals and your business goals but more importantly what is it doing for the audience and the reader because that's gonna be without that piece none of the other stuff happens right so that's, I think that's the big question of who is it for and what are they going to get out of it? And then for your book, did you go to an outside publishing house for that or? So I'm self-published okay. and, you know, I could, I could talk at length about the differences between self-publishing and, and the traditional route. And I'll, I'll give you the SparkNotes version which again, it's going to depend which route makes more sense depends on your goals, right? And, and the why. Yep. Um, why I chose self-publishing, one, it's faster. You know, there's much less of a, I don't have to go write a book proposal or get a book agent and get a deal. And, you know, the traditional publishers sometimes can move very slowly. Um, and 
really the benefit, the, the two big benefits I would say of a traditional publisher is one, it's a little more prestigious, you know, especially if you get like one of the big publishers, you know, it's a, it becomes a talking point, which didn't really mean much to me. And the second one is, you know, they help with distribution and, you know, the truth is though, as far as like promoting the book, no matter how you cut it. And I, I have several friends who have done multiple book deals with multiple publishers. You get very little support as far as actually promoting and selling the book. It's only, you know, the, the way they work, they're kind of like investors in the regard that, you know, they make all of their money on a few bets. And so when they have like a hit, they pour all their resources into that. Everything else basically gets minimal support. So okay. I, the reason, the other reason I want self publishing is, uh, besides the speed is I already had a small audience and I knew that I could sell books by myself and I have my own content and distribution and promotional channels and all that stuff. So I figured, you know, why would I cut in the publisher to slow down the process and try to manage me instead of just having full ownership? So that, that was my whole thing. Um, and yeah, that, that's kind of my, my two cents there. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you have any specific questions or anything else that I could share that might be helpful for you. No, I mean, to be very frank, uh, when you first started this conversation on the, on the book and the questions you asked, that just gave me a lot of, uh, for lack of a lot of soul searching and really figuring that part out. Um, because every other question is kind of a mute point so far. And the only other question that based off of what you originally said that I really still really wanted to hear and you answered was the self-publishing versus traditional publisher. So, um, I mean, no, you hit the nail on the head and really the first two parts about, you know, begin at the end and who's the book for that's really, uh, something where I need to take a step back really reflect, think, and come up with that final decision. So, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. So, you're making me think, buddy. Good, good. That's what I like to do. I'm going to give you one more, though, Yep. which is because I remember you asking about the how and the practical, you know, do I write it in 10 hours a week? Do I do an hour a day? Like, what does the actual writing process look like? And I would say, you know, I, I'm guessing that that varies for, for whatever, whoever the author is, and there is no wrong or right way to do it, I don't think, as long as the work gets done. But one thing uh, I think, particularly for like a nonfiction or educational book, a process that I found really great and helpful that I learned was, you know, let's say you write your outline for example, of like your 20 or 30 chapters or whatever, you know, kind of start with the high level ideas. And then for each high level idea, you know, let's say, I don't know, can you throw out like one example of something you might write about the hemp business or like a chapter? Um, how, how I transitioned from physical therapy to cannabis. Okay. So transitioning into cannabis. Yep. So, that I, I would take any idea that you want to write about and ask like it's we're gonna go back to fifth grade or seventh grade like just like you took us to third grade um you know and it's like the the i don't know five or seven of like the who what why how yep so what why not and just asking like the few basic questions not from your perspective, but from the perspective of the reader, you know, so for example, if, if it's transitioning into cannabis, like I, I would, I would literally write out and answer the questions of how to transition into cannabis, how not to transition into cannabis, why to transition into cannabis, why not to transition into cannabis, who should transition into cannabis, who shouldn't transition into cannabis, and, and just kind of, you know, build from there from the big the big idea and then you kind of cover the the how what and the why's and the so what's because 
exactly what you said about some people are visual learners, some are, yep. are, are, you know, need to touch it, some are whatever, you know, it's the same way with, with education in a book where you kind of have to cover your topic. Some people really want to know how, right? Some people really want to know what the right step is or what the, what the traps are. And some people really are about the why or some, you know, so I, it's, it's a good way, I think, particularly for a nonfiction or instructional type book, that this is a great framework that I've learned to just kind of get the ideas flowing. And then you'll just start writing, you start writing the answers. And then once you, you you'll get into the habit of, okay, am I answering, am I providing that value? You know, are these the questions that my readers have? You know, is this going to be the information? It's kind of a way to ensure that you're putting out quality stuff that the reader needs. And I'm going to give you the super bonus icing on the cake, like hack here is as you're answering some of these questions, this is, this is just like brilliant. I, I wish I could take credit for this. This is completely not original. I'm rehashing this from a teacher of mine. And I think it's just so elegant and brilliant. As you're answering these questions, some of the answers might be just a sentence. Some of the answers may be a paragraph. Some of the answers may be a couple of pages. So any of those answers that are a sentence or two, that's a tweet to promote the book. You know, that's a LinkedIn post to promote the book potentially. You know, the paragraph might be a LinkedIn post or a Facebook post. You know, the page might be a blog post or it might just be in the book, you know? So it, there's, it, it's a way to essentially, as you create the book, you're also creating the marketing materials, which are going to allow you to not only promote the book, but also test the material, if you will, as you're writing the book and see what are people responding to? What's, what's, what's hot, what's resonating with your target audience. So those are a few of my top book tips. If you're writing a, a nonfiction book um, or educational book and you know, again, I, I wish I could say that I was the genius who figured this out, but I'm not. And it doesn't matter because, you know, it's a great framework. The beauty of this framework is that anyone can use it. And if you do it in a good way, more often than not, I believe you'll end up with a valuable product that, you know, your audience, if you answer those questions in a good way, and those are the questions they have, you know, they'll be happy with the book. So, hmm. yeah. Uh, you know, thank you very much. And it's funny that last thing you said, I heard that one time before as well, too. Completely forgot all about it, but so true. Which part? Sorry. Oh, the very last part about, you know, if any idea takes just a, a sentence or a paragraph, that's more of a, a way to promote. Awesome. So David, before I let you go, what was your biggest takeaway from our conversation here today? Or the highlight of the, the conversation? Well, the highlights being able to spend uh, an over an hour with you, of course, one-to-one -one attention, uninterrupted. You know, that's always a highlight right Thank there. Because each Thank time you, you and I see each other, it's usually in a group setting or a virtual of a whole bunch of other people. So, you know, um, but I really think the highlight is really just the way you just answer the question about the book, like begin, begin with the end in mind, you know, who's the book for? Um, and... You know, it's just one of those things where I really, really got a lot out of it. So thank you for that. Awesome. I love to hear that. That makes me feel like I'm doing my part to uplift the community. And, you know, it's my, my bliss is to help cannabis entrepreneurs and activists like you to progress in their path. And it sounds like I, I did my part today. And I'm, I, I just hope that one day I get an autographed copy of, of the book whenever it's ready. And I will gladly buy a copy, but I, I just want it signed before, no before problem. you're too big for the little guys, you know? Oh, come on. No, <laughs> I, you know, if it's funny, cause every day I say three things that I'm grateful for. People say, why do you still do that? I'm like, because I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for a big network of people who've been there, 
in different situations. And like today, one of the three things I was grateful for today was be able to do a podcast. You know, like, hey, great. Now we're able to educate, empower, inform the public. And I have a lot of respect for you and for what you do in your career. So I was really excited for today. It's like, hey, you know, here's a great opportunity. And if it wasn't for some other people, it's opportunity never came around. And so, you know, that's one of the three things I was grateful for today. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. One of my mentors said, and this, this has stuck with me from the moment I heard it, the secret to life is gratitude. And I encourage every coaching client I've ever worked with to have a gratitude practice because at the end of the day, I've found 10 times out of 10 that when I feel grateful, I'm energetically at a higher place and I'm more effective from that place of high energy than if I'm, you know, feeling mopey or, or critical or, you know, any of the, any of the lower emotional or energetic states. And so if you don't practice gratitude, if you're not finding three things that you're grateful for every day, I would encourage you, I'm going to, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to prescribe <laughs> that anyone listening to this, you know, first thing you do in the morning when you wake up is you should be grateful that you woke up and that you're alive. And when you go to bed, reflect on three things you're grateful for, three things that happened that day that, that you're grateful for and do it for a week, do it for a month. I guarantee it'll change your life. Oh, and, definitely. And so Dr. David, I... I'm grateful that you joined me today because you gave me a chance to do what I love, which is share cannabis entrepreneur stories and do a little bit of coaching. And so, you know, I'm going to walk away from this meeting with this big smile on my face. Nice. And, and like I'm it. grateful that I got to spend the time with you. And, and, you know, I feel like I am more willing to achieve my greatness after this conversation than I was mm -hmm. before. You know, maybe the caffeine hit me, but I don't think that's what it was. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> love it, man. Love it. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.